Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Once more before we dive into God's word, Lord, we thank you so much um, that uh, you've given us your word. And just as we've set out to do in taking a break from our study through the book of Luke to look at the whole story of scripture, um, that in it is everything pertaining to life and godliness, that we might be able to, just as was demonstrated for us, hide your word in our hearts, um, that it might keep us from sin, that it might show us the beauty of Jesus, and that it might shape us to be more and more like you. Um, Lord, we ask that you bless our time together this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. So uh, if you've just joined us, we're in the middle of a series that's working through the whole of Scripture together um, to help you guys read the Bible. And so next week, we're going to take a quick break. Um, I'm going to be out of town. Johnny's going to be preaching on prayer, which is great because two things that every Christian wants to get better at is reading their Bible and prayer. And so we want to help you guys with that here at the beginning of this new year. Um, But we're halfway through doing this uh, because we want to help all of us myself included, uh, grow in our ability to read and understand the Bible devotionally. And so my goal as I seek to do this is not to read the Bible for you. It's actually to read the Bible with you. As we work through our Bible reading plan, you could get on the app or you could pick up back at the info desk. Uh, I want each of us to be able to help each other, to dialogue with one another, to encourage one another as we understand and apply God's word together. And here's the beautiful truth. No matter how old you are, No matter how many years you follow Jesus, you will never exhaust the riches of Scripture. It will always be amazing to you. The 18th century pastor, Andrew Fuller, once encouraged a newly appointed minister with the same thing that we want this series to encourage you with today, and that is this. He says, we need not fear exhausting the Bible or dread a scarcity of divine subjects if our hearts are bet but kept in unison with the spirit in which the Bible is written, everything we meet there will be interesting. The more we read, the more interesting it will appear. And the more we know, the more we shall perceive there is to be known. It is a never-ending well of God's beautiful truth of what he's done to save us in Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to endeavor to discover the brilliant and divine interest of the Old Testament prophets. But before we go on, uh, I want to give one just point of, of uh, address to the order in which we're proceeding. Because if you have your table of contents open in the Bible, you'll notice where we ended last week was the book of 2 Kings. And then what comes next is First and Second Chronicles, and then comes the wisdom literature, and then comes the prophets. And so we're actually stopping and skipping a large chunk, and then we're getting to the prophets. And I want to explain why. And that's because what we have in our English Bibles is based off the Greek Old Testament. And the order I've been following uh, up until this point and will continue to follow through the rest of the Old Testament is based off what is known as the Hebrew Old Testament. And I want to just preface real quick. When we talk about the Greek Old Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament, we're just talking about two simple things. We're talking first about the language it's written in, the Hebrew obviously based off Hebrew, and then the Greek based off the Greek Septuagint. And so just the language in which it's written. And then secondly, the order in which the books are presented. The content and materials are the same. There aren't two Old Testaments. There aren't two Bibles. And the Greek Old Testament that we have is arranged in such a way that uh, you can think of it as an arrow. It kind of sets up the reading of the New Testament. It progresses really chronologically. It, proceeds, it begins in the past. We started week one looking at the history or at the Pentateuch. 
And then it goes from the histories, it goes to the present, and that's the wisdom literature. And then it concludes with the prophets, which get to the future. And so it's kind of striking through history. And if you are someone who likes uh, uh, structure and order, this Greek New Testament is great for you because it kind of reads like a historical biography that goes and lumps these chronological events together and proceeds that way. However, the Hebrew Old Testament, which would have been the Bible that Jesus and his disciples were most familiar with, is set up less like a historical biography and more like a memoir. It's grouped thematically with less of a concern on on, uh, the chronology and more of a concern on the essence of the story itself. And you might get a little wigged out about that, like you don't like it. We don't like it when things are out of order. And so it's called the Tanaka, uh, and it's just the first two letters of the Hebrew words for the law the prophets, and the writings. And so week one, we looked at the the law. We looked at the Pentateuch. Last week, we began the prophets looking at the former prophets. This week, we're looking at the latter prophets, which I'll talk about in a moment. And then we're gonna circle back and look at the writings. And the writings begin with Ruth, a narrative, and then go to the wisdom literature for a little bit. And then it begins the narrative again with the book of Daniel and proceeds through first and second chronicles. And if you get weirded out by that, if you've watched the Marvel series, lay off, okay? Because that thing's all over the place and everyone loves it, all right? And this makes more sense than any of that. So we can do it, all right? If you're just a linear person, you're a little wigged out about what's going on, if you know Ant-Man, you can do this. And one is not wrong to read the Greek and right to read the Hebrew. It's the exact same word of God. It's just in a different order. However, for the goal of our series, it's most helpful, I believe, to follow the story of the Hebrew Old Testament because it helps us understand the centrality of Jesus Christ in a unique way. And our goal for each of these sermon series is to do three things. Three things we'll do together as we look at the latter prophets. We're going to learn to survey the story. That's where does the story of Jesus relate to the story of Uh, the prophets. Then we're going to study the story. We're going to learn how to read it in context, in genre, so that we can know what it's saying. Isn't that good news? We could know God's word. It doesn't have to be mysterious to us. And then lastly, we get to savor the savior of the story. And that is where we take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we have heard and studied in scripture, and we apply it to our heads, our hearts, and our hands. And so the overarching theme we're going to see today as we look at Jesus in the prophets is this. It is the heart of God and the call to repent. The heart of God and the call to repent. And we're gonna begin by surveying the story. And so if it's helpful for you, again, you can pick up a manuscript at the back. You can listen to this on podcast later. We're gonna be going through a lot, but I believe we can do it together. And so we're looking today at what are called the latter prophets. It includes three major prophets. That's uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And the book of Lamentations is lumped into the major prophets because it's also written by Isaiah. And then there are 12 minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And it's not that some of these are majorly important and some of these are minorly important. That's not why they're the minor and major prophets. It's that some of them are big and long and others are shorter and less long. They're all equally important. But when it comes to the story of the Old Testament, these prophets that we're looking at today span a stretch of over 200 years of Israel's history. And a lot of really important things happened there. In the Pentateuch, and in the first part of the histories we looked at last week, God created, sin ruined, God covenanted to redeem. He was going to bring them to the promised land, and they get there, and they start life in the promised land. And that's where these prophets pick up. Some of the prophets write in the age of the divided kingdom, where account of, of Israel's sin 
There was the northern kingdom of Israel, which was in rebellion against the southern kingdom of Judah. But then also tracks when the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and the southern kingdom of Judah is carried off into captivity, into exile. But then it continues to write, even as the exiled tribes are released back out of Babylon and released to go back into the promised land. In other words, the history that we look at, the story itself that you encounter in the prophets, includes a lot of what we looked at last week. And it includes a lot of what you'll also see as we begin to read in Daniel and, and uh, First and Second Chronicles. But there's something unique about these prophetic books. When we read the rest of the histories, it's written from the perspective of humans. It's equally God's word. It's divinely inspired, but it's written as a divinely inspired man describes what's going on. But as the prophets speak, God speaks. While all of the Bible is God's word, these words are God's direct discourse to his people, which means these books are God's divine commentary on the darkness we see in Israel's history, and it reveals his zeal to do something about it. The prophets reveal to us God's perspective and God's heart on the human condition in a unique way. And so as we read, we can wonder, why are God's people so broken? Why is the story so messed up? Why do our hearts ache as we read of the darkness of the king and the terror and evil in the book of Judges? Well, God tells us. He gives us his perspective in the book of Hosea, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. Listen here. This is God's word to his people. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increase, the more altars he builds. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. What's the problem? Their heart is false. As we can look at the words here, we can begin to understand what's going on when they're building altars and they're building pillars. Those are terms for idolatry. And so when they come into the land, the more Israel enjoyed the fruit of God's promise to give them the promised land, the more they built altars, not to the God of Scripture, but to false gods. The more Israel should have turned into God's covenant, the more they improved their worship of idols. God explains how things got so dark in Hosea 5.11 where he says, Ephraim is oppressed and crushed in judgment. Why? God tells us. He says, because they have pursued, or they, because he was determined to go after filth. We need God's perspective to make sense of our own experiences. And here in the prophets, God gives us his perspective. Pursuing sin is equal to pursuing filth. And in so doing, you're actually, actually violating God's covenant, which means we have two problems when it comes to sin. We have an experience problem with the object of sin, and we have an experience problem with the God uh, to whom we're sinning against. Experientially, when we get sin, we try so hard to get it, and what do we find? It's filth. We didn't get what we wanted. In the meantime, in pursuing that filth, what have we done? We've sinned against God. We have rejected, rebelled, hated him. And so this is important for us to understand because it helps make sense of the story. Are there any kids in here who know the three Ps that we've been talking about 
that makes sense of God's story? Anyone know? God's place? God's Jackson? You don't know? I'll call you out. God's presence and God's people. God's presence, God's place, and God's people. That's what we had in Eden, what was lost by sin, and what God will restore again in the end of all things. And the story of the prophets is how God is going to deal with a people who do not look like his people, who have caused chaos to ruin his place, and whose sin has provoked his presence. How is God going to solve it? By his mercy. God's people have broken his covenant, and so you know what God's going to do? He's going to make a new one. He's going to call his people out of the wages of their sin and brokenness and call them out of judgment by calling them to repentance. And here's where we begin to see God's heart in the prophets. God is brutally opposed to sin. He hates it. But God loves his people. The prophets track God's justice and wrath to deal with sin as sin deserves while simultaneously calling his people to repent and be saved. And there's this really interesting thing because there's what's called the doctrine of God's impassibility, which you might not care about at all, but it's good news. And it's this. It's that our God is not ruled by his emotions. That's a miserable life. If you're ruled by your emotions, you make rash, terrible decisions. Instead, God has affections, but his affections are completely in line with his character. And so there's this beautiful thing that happens where this God who is not driven by fickle emotions, he's not influenced by his emotions, but his affections are influenced by his character, where in the prophets, we actually get a glimpse into God's emotional life. And God describes his experience as being our God when his people sin. And there are three metaphors that will come back to you over and over again. God is writing, calling them to repent, as a heartbroken father watching his children sin and incur harm. He's writing as a defrauded lender who gave generously only to have his people steal from him. And God writes as a spurned and abandoned lover who covenanted himself to a spouse who has committed adultery with myriads of other lovers. And so this is important because what drives God's judgment and what drives God's desire to save is the zealous affection of God for his people and his hatred towards sin perfectly upheld in his character. And so the prophets are always interweaving, and you'll notice this, this idea of sin and judgment and salvation and repentance. We see this most clearly in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, where God commissions the prophet Jeremiah and listen to these themes interwoven. Then the Lord put out, or put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. God is going to remake his people by doing what? By judging them, by plucking them up and throwing them down, but also by restoring them, by planting and by building. And the story of the prophets tracks Israel's arrogance in which at every time God calls to them, they refuse to repent. 
They refuse to humble themselves and turn themselves back on account of their sin. And because of this, because God cares for his people, he will not let sin have the last word. Instead, he will humble Israel through judgment. He will show them through their physical domination of other nations, just as you would discipline a child, that there is a greater thing to dread than physical harm. And that is rejecting God's covenant promise. And so this is helpful. We saw in the Pentateuch, we saw in the history last week, and we see this week that there is both a geographic and a theological progression to this. And so geographically, the progression is this. It's into exile and back again. God's people are going to get carried on account of their sin out of the promised land to Babylon. But then by God's grace, he's going to bring them out of Babylon and replant them in the promised land. But this reveals to us the theological progression of the prophets. And that is from the old covenant to the new by the spirit of repentance. From the old covenant to the new covenant by the spirit of repentance. How is God going to heal an unrepentant people? He's going to make a covenant distinct from the covenant he made with Abraham that will actually change their hearts. And a key text which explains this tension of salvation and judgment and repentance and affection is what Devin just read for us in Hosea chapter 14. And I'd like to read that for us once more and see if you could pick up these interweaving of themes. This is, again, the Lord speaking to his people. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our iniquity and accept what is good. We will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. And then here's God speaking again. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. We've all smelled Lebanon, right? We know we want that. That was a joke. I've never spelled Lebanon. Uh, They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but the transgressors stumble in them. How is God going to save Israel from the judgment, their idolatry, the work of their hands produces? by calling them, look at Hebrews, or Hosea 14, 1 and 2, to return. That word return is just the Hebrew word for repent, to come back to God. Whoever is wise, says God, understand these things. So what does it look like to understand this? Well, now let's begin to turn our attention to our second point. How do we study the story? If the story at a survey level is into exile and back again from the new covenant to the, or from the old covenant to the new by the spirit of repentance... How do we actually read this? And when it comes to the style and genre of writing, we're going to find bits and pieces of narrative like we found in the histories and in the law. But for the most part, the prophetic books introduce to us a new form of writing. And that's the writing of something that's called the prophetic oracle. And these are often introduced by phrases like the Lord says 
or thus says the Lord, and are meant to be read as God's direct communication to his people. Sometimes these oracles are lined up in linear form, but oftentimes they're not. And that's because as you read the story, the prophets often had a scribe write down these prophecies and the kings of Israel would try and catch them and destroy them. And so these prophets got these scrolls and arranged them in such a way to keep them safe and to teach them to Israel. And so sometimes it's chronological, sometimes it's thematic, and sometimes it reads almost like a question and answer, almost like a frequently asked question of how did we get here and how do we get back? And so if you're wondering, are they disjointed? They kind of are sometimes but that's part of God's intention of drawing you into the story. And the language God uses in these oracles is vivid, poetic language. It's got vivid imagery because it's trying to illustrate the vivid problem of sin. And we'll talk more about how we interpret this when we look at the wisdom literature and the book of Revelation later on. But one thing we're trying to note is that God is wanting us to not just understand at an intellectual level the problem of sin in the heart of God, but he's wanting us to understand it on an emotional level. We talk about, even what I just joked about, the scent of Lebanon, the goodness of wine. He's connecting that with our affections, not just our intellect. But one thing that's gonna be really helpful to understand as you read the prophets is a cursory understanding of the names and nations that are often talked about in these books. You see, when you watch a movie from the 1980s and Russia's in it, what do you do? You import all of the context of the Cold War and it makes sense of the story. It's not just this random nation. It's like you carry the fears, the concerns, and the happenings of the day and it makes sense of the story. We need the same help if we're going to understand the prophets. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us just a little bit of a geopolitical background on the prophets. And so first, and we actually saw this already in Hosea 14, we see nations of Egypt and Assyria and they're often spoken of as false hopes. False hopes for salvation. And here in Hosea 14, it says, the people respond to God saying, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And that's because during the civil war between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, um, the kingdom of Israel joined forces with Syria, without nay, and they tried to attack the kingdom of Judah. Judah was promised God's divine help to withstand that attack. But what they did instead is they tried to strike a backroom deal with the nation of Egypt and the nation of Assyria because they didn't fully trust God. They trusted in men. And so when Egypt and Assyria show up, it's often showing up as a portrait of false hope. But that's not all. Now, I've given note-takers a bad rap in this series, but I'm going to give you guys, are you ready? I'm going to give you a table of dates and names. Like, All right, so it's going to be up on the screen here, and I'm just going to walk you through this because Assyria, though often a portrait of false hope, carries on in a way that Egypt doesn't. Assyria is often spoken of as well as a means of judgment. And that's because, as you see there, in the year 722 BC, in just quick history lesson, BC counts down, AD counts up. And so when it's going down, it's getting closer to present day. In 722 BC, the kingdom of Israel was wiped out by Assyria. And then in the year 701, Assyria came to the front door of the nation of Judah and just about conquered it, but God providentially kept his covenant and spared Judah. And and also important, we're going to encounter the nation of Nineveh here. And so you'll read a lot about Nineveh in the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. Nineveh is synonymous with Assyria. It's the capital city of Assyria. 
However, God judges Assyria for her own violence in the year 612 when the nation of Babylon, which is often called Chaldea, conquered Assyria. So Assyria was what God used to judge the kingdom of Israel, and Babylon is the nation who God used to judge the kingdom of Assyria. In 580, and then in 586 BC, God used the nation of Babylon to judge Israel. How strong is our God? He directs nations and shapes the, close, the course of global history. And so depending upon which countries you're encountering in Scripture, we're able to place ourselves like, who are we fearing right now? What's going on? Is Assyria the threat? Is Babylon the threat? Is the nation of Israel still rebelling? Have they already been conquered? Has Judah been carried into captivity? And one other name that you need to be mindful of that shows up a lot, and actually showed up here in Hosea again, is the name Ephraim. Ephraim is a tribe that's meant to be synonymous with the northern kingdom of Israel. It was the, the lowest tribe in Israel that butted up to Judah, and so it was a place of great conflict. And so when you read Ephraim, think of the, the, the house of Israel in contrast to Judah or the house of David. So there you note takers go. You made it. Congratulations. And this is important because it helps us understand the story of what's going on. But now what I want to do is I want to look in brief at the theme of the three major prophets. And then I want to look in brief at three themes that are throughout the whole of the prophets. And so that's what we're going to do right now. And uniquely, each of the three prophets emphasizes a specific aspect of those place, presence, and people. And we're going to begin in the book of Jeremiah, where God's place takes center stage. This is seen not only in what we read earlier in Jeremiah 1, 9, and 10, where God says he's going to bring them back, he's going to plant them, he's going to rebuild them. But there's a key allegory that God asks Jeremiah to participate in, in Jeremiah 32. One thing you'll notice as you read the prophets is God often asks the prophets to participate in live-action recitals of spiritual realities. And so in the book of Hosea, God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute, and to be faithful to her as an example to Israel of how God will remain faithful to his people even though his people commit spiritual adultery with other gods. In Ezekiel chapter 4, the prophet is called to be tied up and bound for 390 days to bear the punishment of Israel. Acting as a representation of Israel's judgment, the prophet Ezekiel was to bear a physical representation of that punishment. And in Jeremiah 32, the Babylonian army is actively attacking Jerusalem. And so imagine it. There's like, think we've all hopefully seen Lord of the Rings. If not, find a different church. And, and they're all there. They're storming against it. And uh, you could read it too. Do you know there's books for it? Um, anyway, the army is pressing against the city. Terrible time to buy any sort of real estate. And God says, hey, Jeremiah, go buy this field in the city. This would have been the absolute worst investment idea because everything he was about to strike up with his brothers was about to be wiped out when another nation came and said, this land's our land because we killed you. But look at what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, or Jeremiah 32, verses 14 through 15. Thus says, so here's prophetic oracle. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. 
though Babylon was going to sack Jerusalem and conquer it, God says, seal this deed, keep this receipt, for one day, houses and vineyards and fields will be bought again, even though God would be faithful to judge. He would be faithful to keep his promise. He would bring his people back. Then we look at the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel includes some of the wildest, most difficult visions you will see in all of the Bible when it comes to understanding them. But one thing is clear, and that's this, that God's presence is on the move. Ezekiel shows us the wonder of God's presence. There's this indescribable vehicle that Ezekiel's trying to communicate to us that is representative of God's presence, trying to find a place to dwell because he cannot dwell in the midst of a, holy, or in the midst of a sinful people. But then in Ezekiel chapter 44, there's this, this uh, dream Ezekiel has of this new temple. And finally, this new temple is established and God's glory comes and fills that temple And look at the promise that comes when God's physical presence filled God's physical temple in Ezekiel 37, verses 26 through 28. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. How is it, so sanctified is a word we use in church all the time, but it simply means to be set apart, to be cleansed, to not be sinful anymore. And how is God going to sanctify his sinful people? By sanctuarying in the midst of them, by bringing his presence into the midst of them. God was going to heal his people by bringing his presence to them. And lastly, the book of Isaiah captures the recreation of God's people. The recreation of God's people. One thing you'll notice as we read through the prophets is that God does not discriminate. The modern notion of equality in our culture is not modern at all. There is no hope for any equality apart from a God who created us in his image. And we see that most clearly here. We see that God judges without prejudice. No matter your skin color, no matter your income, no matter how close you lived to the temple. You'll read oracles where God judges the pagan nations for their sin. You'll read these in some of the major prophets. There'll be judgment against Assyria, judgment against Moab, judgment against Babylon, judgment against Tyre. But there are also passages where God judges Israel on account of her sin, Judah on account of her sin, Ephraim on account of her sin. God's judgment is real among all nations. He does not discriminate. But you'll also notice that God's salvation is also without discrimination. This does not mean that all are saved, but it means that any can be saved. And Isaiah gives us this beautiful picture that even though the promise had come to Abraham, do you remember when we were in the Pentateuch? The promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 15? where he says, nations will be blessed through you. Look at how God speaks of this in Isaiah 56, verses six through eight. And the foreigners 
who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, who holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. God is going to draw from the nations. The foreigners are going to be a part of God's people. Why? Now pay attention. Because they join themselves to the Lord. They love him. They become his servants. They return to God. Because of God's faithfulness to Israel, nations will flock to the God of Jacob. God will faithfully judge all and any who remain in sin, but God is faithful to welcome all and any who humble themselves and return to him. The big story of the big three is that despite sin, God is going to make a way for his people to be in his presence, to dwell in his place, and to be his people. It will be like Eden, but better. That's the astounding good news of the prophets. It's not only back to Eden, it's better than Eden because God is doing something mighty. And as you read the remainder of the prophets, there are three themes you'll find repeatedly. First, we're going to see the decreation of the land and the dehumanization of his people. The decreation of the land and the dehumanization of his people. And what we see here is we see how sin ruins everything. If there's One out of the top three truths I want us to know. (laughs) If you could just think when you go out on your day that sin ruins everything, things will probably go well for you. Because remember what we saw in Genesis when we began this story. In Genesis 1 verse 2, look at the language that God used. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before God created land and humans, what was the status of the earth? Before God brought perfection to bear, it was formless and void. And then God created. And then sin happened. And then he began recreation and bringing them to the promised land. But in the book of uh, Jeremiah, God talks about what this land is like on account of Israel's sin. And look at what he says in Jeremiah 4 verse 23. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Isn't the Bible cool? This isn't just casual. What is he doing? He's like, they undid creation. (laughs) They are not better off because of their sins. They didn't find flourishing. They lost everything good that I made for them. Sin decreated what God made perfect. Sin ruins everything. Sin doesn't get you closer to Eden. It gets you closer to emptiness. Moreover, as God created the earth and then man, sin not only ruins the earth, it ruins us. It causes us to lose our own humanity. If you read the prophets, what flourishes is man's desire. And what that produces is unrighteousness, oppression, murder, and extortion. Where sin reigns, death reigns. And the prophets call repeatedly for justice and righteousness because sin hurts. Because it doesn't give us what we want. 
We may think that embracing our sin and allowing other people to follow their hearts is the key to unleashing humanity. But this could not be further from the truth. And again, this modern problem is not a modern problem. There is nothing new under the sun. College students are beginning to trickle back in. And as you get here, you might go and you might hear some philosophy, some brilliant philosophy professor say something about the Bible, like out of the whole course of human history, they just cracked it. They are stupid parrots. They are not producing anything new. Sinful people have warred against God and tried to find excuses of obeying him forever. But you know what? God's word teaches us his perspective on these things. He shows us and speaks to our hearts when we were foolish and stupid. What it means to see the world from God's perspective. Look at how Jeremiah warns thousands of years ago of false prophets in Jeremiah 23, 16 through 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own hearts, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. It is foolish to think that following a heart broken with sin leads to hope for humanity. Sin ruins everything and it will ruin you. And this leads us to our next theme. That is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Even though God makes it clear that Israel will be judged, destroyed, and killed by other nations on account of their sin, there is a greater judgment yet to come. That day is called the day of the Lord. Because God is righteous, he will judge sin. We cannot be a people who stand up against evil if we are not a people who constantly believe in a God who will judge sin. And because sin is ultimately against a spiritual God, our judgment will not only be physical, but also spiritual. All physical judgment we read in these passages is meant to cause us to fear the day when the Lord comes to judge not just in the flesh, but also in the spirit. And one thing you'll notice is that the prophets are trying to help you by ridding you of any false assurance you have for that day. They warn of this. Look at Amos chapter 5. Verses 18 through 21. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? What's Amos's point? Many of Israel looks at the hardship of life and they long for the day of the Lord thinking that it will be nothing to them, that they will automatically be accepted, that God will be pleased with them. After all, they are God's people. They have God's presence. They have his covenant. They make their sacrifices. Everything will be fine. And maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you long for God to come back because this world is broken. But what hope do you have in that day? 
Maybe you have no fear of standing before Jesus because you have this false assurance that when God judges what's in your heart, that he will find more good than evil. And on the scales, you'll be good and God will let you in. Maybe you'll think he'll, be, he'll find acceptable your superficial acts of worship, that you memorized Romans 8, 1 and 2, that you went to church that one day, that you participated in community groups, that you have a bumper sticker on your car. But the prophets make it clear that in ourselves, we have no confidence on the day of the Lord. None, zero. So how do we move from confidence in our judgment to confidence in salvation? The prophet Joel, speaking of the day of the Lord, helps us here. Joel 2, 11 through 14. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. How might you be spared? Return to the Lord with all your heart. Come not with the outward scraps of religion, but with the inward rending of your heart. Don't clean up the outside and think that's good. Clean up the inside. You see, repentance is both a change of affection, we no longer want it, and a change of action. We pursue the opposite ends. To return to the Lord, to repent with grief and weeping, with grief and weeping requires a change of heart. But what if we cannot change? What if the grip of sin feels too intense? What if the pain of guilt feels too permanent? What if the reality of some great and magical day of the Lord seems so far off and so contrary to the understanding of our flesh that it produces no fear in us? How will our hearts be changed? And this is where we see the last theme in the prophets. And that is the dawn of the new covenant. And it's here where we cannot linger, but must immediately go to our final point this morning. This is where we learn to savor the savior of the story. Savor the savior of the story. God's word of judgment in the prophets is simple. If you remain in sin, you will die on account of your sin. Not just physically, but spiritually. But God's word of mercy is clear in the prophets. Repent and live. Change your heart. Love God again. Tear down your idols. Put away your false prophets and fake comforts and return to him. But Israel's history, our own history, shows us that we can change just about everything in this world. But we can't change our hearts. The technological, geopolitical developments we've had in the last 200 years have been astounding. But the heart condition remains the same. We can't change our hearts. But look at what is said in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 31. Therefore, say to the house of the Lord, 
Thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. God is going to bring a new people and a new place and a new presence, but what is he going to do with it? I will sprinkle you or I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. How are our hearts finally changed? By the zeal of God for you. To come in and give you a new spirit, his spirit, cleansing you from your sins. And what does that produce? Grief. That you would loathe your sin. That you would cling to God. Where do we get this grief? I could stand here right now and God could give me access to all of your deepest, darkest sins and I could stand here and I can read it and guess what? It's insufficient. That is not the grief that is sufficient. Where do we see grief that produces repentance? Consider Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. If you skip down to chapter 13, verse one, it continues. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from uncleanness. If we want our hearts to be changed, if you want to repent, we need to gaze at the wonder of him who was pierced for our sins. It is not simply enough to see how bad your sin is if you do not see how supremely scandalous the cross of Jesus is. The gospel not only sees the weight of the problem, but the wonder of the solution. 
The new covenant we need is one where what fixates our mind is not merely the weight of our sin, but the wonder of the one who bore our sin for us. Jesus, in all his holy, perfect righteousness, he takes our sin on the cross and he lights in us a spirit of affection that fans our hearts to love God the Father. This foundation, this is the foundation of the new covenant we see. And the author of Hebrews speaks of this in Hebrews 9, verses 13 through 15. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Brothers and sisters, if you want to stand in awe of Jesus, savor the prophets. Jesus is Isaiah's child king, the beautiful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. Upon him, his government knows no end. Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant who is crushed and afflicted for the sake of our sins. Jesus is the greater Jonah, not reluctant to preach repentance to his enemies, but eager to offer mercy to all who respond at cost of his own life. Jesus is the righteous remnant remaining true in the midst of a faithless world. Jesus is Jeremiah's true vine, which brings life to all who grow from it. Jesus is the greater Ezekiel who bears the sin and punishment of his own brothers. Jesus takes Gomer's unfaithfulness. Jesus takes Ephraim's filth. Jesus heals Isaiah's unclean lips. Jesus encounters Judah's exile. He is the prophet who didn't live out a spiritual metaphor, but became the true reality behind all of of the substitution and sacrifice we need on the cross and who gave us not a glimpse of new life in the resurrection, but the reality of it. Dear church, it is not that God would want you to lack confidence before him. It is not that the life of a Christian is only a life of plucking up and tearing down. There is great hope. There is profound confidence in God's desire to plant and to rebuild but do you know how that gift is yours? Because of the work of Jesus, we look at him and repent. We can have our hearts turned by the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk humbly with the Lord, confident in our sinfulness, more confident in his grace to forgive all who return. What should a reading of the prophets produce in you? I want to leave you simply with this, something we'll practice in a moment as Devin leads us. Hosea 12, verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we together gaze at the glory of the greater and true prophet, Jesus Christ, that we gaze not on merely a historical character, not a moral teacher, 
not a righteous and religious man, but we gaze on him who our sins have pierced. And that in seeing the beauty of Christ in the face of our sins, we repent. Lord Jesus, may it be so. We pray this in your name. Amen.